Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guest, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you all for being with us. And now, the highlight of the show, as far as I'm concerned, when I bring on my producer, Lori Houston. My mother would have loved Lori. Um, Well, my mother was extremely accomplished, as is Lori, but she wasn't the easiest person to please, as uh, Lori will attest to, having heard me say that many times. Uh, briefly after the break, we'll meet another. We'll meet another extremely accomplished woman. She is Dr. Alyssa Dweck, a renowned OBGYN, right here in New York, and she will talk all about the women's issues we wanted to know, but we're we're afraid to ask. We'll talk about the women's issues we all wanted to know, but we're afraid to ask. Lori, how are you? I, mi- I missed you in here. <laughs> I forgot to say, come on in and say hello. How are you? Well, you know, Jane, mothers are our biggest trigger because they're where we learned all of our, our, our lessons. So, you know, they, they trigger us. So probably for other people, your mother was perfect, but I'm gone. I'm fine. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to hear all about my mother right, right now. Um, And that's the reason I actually, I, I mentioned her because I'm dedicating my first, the first part of this show to her. See, I'm all like thrown off here. So I am thrilled to introduce you to my next guest. She is Rebecca Jumper Matheson. She is a fashion historian and author, the, a former research assistant at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she has taught in the History of Art Department at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Her first book was The Sun Bonnet, an American icon in Texas, and her new book, Young Originals, Emily Wilkins and the Teen Sophisticate, which explores the life and work of Emily Wilkins, who was an innovator in the field of American teenage clothing in the 40s, and she also happens to be my mother. Welcome to this show, Rebecca. I'm so happy you're with us today. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, my goodness. It's such a pleasure. Um, and as I just said to Lori, she was not the easiest mother. Now, you, Rebecca, have two absolutely gorgeous daughters. And as an aside, oh, thank a, you. <laughs> a really lovely husband. Your girls are so polite and lovely. Um, and you know, as a mother, it's not easy to bring up children, especially girls. But yours are young, though. There's time for them to tell you not to criticize their hair. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right, right. Well, you know, some of those battles already, but not too big. (laughs) Not not too big. Or or say things like, please, God, don't tell me that's a hoodie you're wearing, says my daughter to me, everyone. That said my mother (laughs) to me, and my daughter says that too, actually. Um, Now, I, I, I've devoted much of my book, Long Live You, to my mother and even dedicated it to her along with my husband, children and grandchildren, as you have read. And she is still the shining light from above that guides me through life. But she also gave some wonderful advice, um, such as uh, stop worrying about what might have been and start looking forward to what can be. And she always believed that no matter what issues I had been dealing with, in recent weeks, I have the talent and tenacity to turn things around. And now if I'd only comb my hair, <laughs> I would be perfect. 
Ah, grooming uh, was important to her, very oh, much so. Grooming was essential. And, you know, Rebecca, in the book, you do tell some stories about how she left my brother in his pajamas all day. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't <laughs> funny. <laughs> Oh, but that that was a whole different thing. And her kitchen skills left a lot to be desired. As I've told the story on the show. One night she did make dinner and we all sat down and the lights were dimmed and out came eggs, hard soft-boiled eggs, I believe, and burnt applesauce. I said, you know, Mom, Mom, what is this? She goes, it's dinner, dear. I said, uh, okay. So. <laughs> but that, and th- yet nutrition was very important to her. So, you know, maybe if, even if not as the cook herself – she definitely right. cared so much about healthy eating and was so ahead of her time and all the in her concern about about putting the right things in your body. So, oh, she was she was so as you said she was so ahead of her time. We used to eat yogurt before yogurt was cool. We used to have and and I I've told the story on the show that she used to have us drink raw liver juice because liver was very high in iron and B vitamins. I mean today I don't know if mm. you do that, but and you know it's like. Uh, Ew, but my brother and I, we could not stomach that. So we threw it out the window. And to this day, one day I walked by the apartment where we grew up and I saw the most beautiful tree that was growing where the liver juice had landed. (laughs) (laughs) But he also used to put his spinach behind the curtains. So I don't know what grew there, but I don't think it was a beautiful tree. but you know something aside from aside from her career as a you know her renowned career in beauty and, and and health she had an amazing career as a designer and not that many people know that in fact in a review of your wonderful new book young originals um somebody said that there was a real need for her story to to be told as it captures the essence of this remarkable woman and her times. So could you give us an overview of Emily Wilkins' career? Absolutely. Well, as you've touched on, she was way ahead of her time in some of the things she did in health and beauty later in her career. But before she even turned to that, she first worked as a fashion illustrator. She then worked as a children's wear designer. And then the what I think is one of the high points of her design career, designing for teenagers. And then, of course, later she became an author and a lecturer, a university instructor, a TV personality. She did so many things, but especially uh, I think her work with teenagers and designing fashion specifically for teenagers is really, really amazing. She did some really innovative things there. And she was very, in, in, in those days when she was designing, it was rare that women had those kind of careers that you were talking, you know, it, it, uh, and you had said it was very rare that she owned the the rights to her design. What was it that you were um, telling us about? Well, that she, she she actually had a, a business ownership interest in her business, which was very unusual for fashion designers. Fashion designers were usually employees of a manufacturer, and they didn't usually get to have any sort of control over the business side of things. They they did their artistic thing. Maybe they got name recognition. Maybe they didn't. A lot of them didn't. Um, But she actually got to have her name on the label. And she was considered a partner in the business. Um, And other people in the industry writing about her at the time made note of the fact that she was one of the few fashion designers in America who was actually a partner with the manufacturer. This was really unusual for anybody. And the fact that here she was, she was only in her 20s and a woman, and she was actually involved in the business side as well as the artistic side uh, was really pretty amazing. It was quite an accomplishment. 
Now, Rebecca, how did you become interested in her work to begin with? Well, I actually first saw the garments. So before I knew any of the amazing story about her, I saw some of her designs um, at a museum where I was working, and I was just really drawn to them right away. They, they're just beautiful, um, such a pleasing, uh, just an enthusiastic kind of aesthetic, If you know, just really happy and youthful and attractive. And I thought, wow, what are these amazing dresses? And I saw the label, Emily Wilkins Young Originals. And so I put that, you know, made a note, and I started collecting a little file of information on her from there. And then I found more about her designs and more about the other things that she had done. You know, it was fascinating when you're talking about designs, and and she had said, and and she always felt that we shouldn't get discouraged by criticism. In fact, she had said that criticism, you know, if someone says something bad about you, that's, that's that's the greatest um, incentive to do better. And she, she, she said that, you know, there's no greater uh, incentive than an insult to, to get you to where you want to be. And she had said that one of the teachers, the illustration, you know, who were, who were um, in her design class, I believe when she was designing and making figures, was that one of her, her hands looked like paws. They didn't look like hands. And she said, I'll show this woman about the, my hands that look like paws. <laughs> and then she went on <laughs> to become, you know, one of the the top designers. And she said, this is something that really, she said, nobody's going to say that about my designs again. So it was interesting. So every time I look at her designs, I think, um, of, I look at her hands, which look like hands. They don't look like paws, <laughs> actually. But, of course, <laughs> yeah, of course not. And she took that just almost like a challenge. Like, how right. can I turn this criticism into a positive? How can I go and and do it and show that I can actually do this? And she did. Her illustrations um, are really beautiful. She does beautiful illustrations um, for all her designs. Some of her first ones are just showing the design, and some of her later ones show more construction details. And, you know, she found work as a designer um, after she had a whole career as an illustrator and was actually designing um, things in her drawings, she was changing the things that she was supposed to draw so much that they really became her own designs. And that's how she realized, hey, maybe I could be a designer rather than uh, simply illustrating things, even though her illustrations were beautiful. Right. And she was driven. I mean, as you said, in those days, women were not quite as, as driven as she. And that was um, th- that was amazing. You know, I, I wish I had her drive. <laughs> Lori wishes I had her drive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and her enthusiasm, too. I I think that, you know, she really had a very enthusiastic way of presenting her ideas, which I think really drew people to her and um, was a real positive with uh, striking out into some of this new territory. Now, she was the most famous for the teenage um, clothes, right, for solving teenage, the fashion problems. Now, other than my wearing hoodies later in life, how, what else, (laughs) what what were the the other problems that she wanted to solve? (laughs) Well, some of the big problems that she discovered, um, she initially designed um, theater costumes for teenage characters in the play Junior Miss on Broadway. And what she came to realize was that there was a real problem with ready-to-wear for teenage girls. Teenage girls, even up through about age 16, were still expected to shop in the little girls' department. They weren't supposed to go to the junior's department. That was too mature looking. Um, 
So they were trying to fit into clothes that were still being cut, very square, just like, you know, a little girl six years old. Same thing, just larger, was being marketed to a 16-year-old. And obviously, that wasn't working. Um, also, problems of just developing figures. There was, nothing, there was nothing there. And so she did two different things with her clothes that made them really unique. One of them, she did special teen sizes, so not little girls, not as mature as juniors, but special in-between teen sizes. And the second thing she did was actually design the clothes on an aesthetic level in ways that would help teenage girls look better. So, for example, she did little shoulder wings, she called them, like little ruffles on the shoulder that would kind of make your shoulder look bigger so your waist looks smaller. Um, meanwhile, if your waist actually is expanding and contracting because you're a teenager and, you know, you're a different size every week, she did things like smocking that she built into the design of the dress. So there was already some ease built in um, for figures. If you were growing fast, she put deep hems in the bottoms of the dresses so they could be let out easily. Uh, things like that were some of the ways that she tried to help teenagers who just really looked unflattering <laughs> in uh, little girls' clothes, tried to, to find a special space for them, uh, really speaking to their, to their sort of fit needs. I think she'd be appalled with what teenagers are wearing today, though, I must say. Oh, oh, well, she would, you know, because part of the things, you know, part of the thing was their issues were so different. Um, in the 1940s, teenagers wanted to wear longer skirts. Um, it's so funny to think about today because usually teenagers want shorter skirts. But in the 1940s, short skirts were for little girls. You know, think about Shirley Temple and her tap dancing with those little dresses that barely covered her little matching bloomers. Well, teenage girls wanted to wear longer skirts that made them look more mature. Um, so, again, Emily Wilkins did kind of a compromise. She did sweet-looking cotton dresses but gave them a longer hem, so not at all like the babyish, you know, three- or four-year-old type outfit. Right. And you have some of those designs, which I, you actually have her design, which I, you know, when we came to see you, I was so blown away by the actual designs that you had. But I think these were for older, right? These weren't for teenagers, the ones that I saw. What? Some of them were, were for the older, like in the 1950s, she actually moved into doing juniors and even Mrs. Sizes. So some of the ones I have are later in the, the Mrs. Sizes and in the junior sizes. Um, but I do have at least uh, one that's probably aimed more at, like, her teen market, but the slightly older teen market. And right, they are. They're absolutely beautiful. They are. And my daughter, who came with her, who's 26, she looked and she says, you know, I would wear that. So, you know, it's, um, it's interesting that it's sort of her designs have transcended um, the, the time, the ages. And, and she was, they also were in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you know, the Costume Institute at one point on display? At one point they were. Um, in 1998, there was an exhibition, uh, American Ingenuity, that showed some of her designs. Most of those things have now been transferred to the collection of Parsons, the new school. So they're not at the Costume Institute now. Um, the Valentine in Richmond, the Valentine Richmond History Center, has a really amazing dress of hers, which is really fascinating because it's from the World War II period. And 
you know, they had fabric shortages, so they were looking for every way they could to use the minimal amount of fabric. So it has fun details on the front, like a little peplum and a little Peter Pan collar. But then you turn the dress around to the back, and it's absolutely simple. No collar, no peplum, every, just absolutely simple and modern on the back. So, you know, I think that is part of how she does transcend time in a lot of ways because she was designing things that were so beautifully modern. And then she added some fun details um, to give them a historical flair sometimes. But the underlying dress is a very modern, very comfortable, um, very practical kind of dress. Right. Now, what were some of her design influences? Well, being in that period in the 1940s, um, she loved to do research in museums. Um, There was a lot of sort of debate within the American fashion community after Paris was cut off as an influence. They couldn't go to Paris and study those things to set the American fashions um, at a certain point. And so then they were really having to think, what is American fashion now? So I think Emily Wilkins um, was both inspired by American sportswear, like the concept of separates that you can mix and match. She did wonderful, wonderful mix and match ensembles. Um, she'd do something like a play suit that could go to the beach with a jacket and a skirt that could be worn with it and over it mixed and matched to go to town or out on a date. Um, she did one ensemble that had one blouse, but you could wear it either with sort of pedal pushers or a skirt or even a full-length evening dress. Um, so she did lots of that mix-and-match sportswear influence. But she was also really influenced by American history. So she also went and looked at historical garments in museums, and she was very interested in 19th century um, clothing, children's clothing especially, also 19th century undergarments. So there are these wonderful little details like um, lacing in and out of like a lace trim, like a ribbon laced through it, which she copied from 19th century underwear and then put it on the outside. So <laughs> there's all kinds of fun things um, that she took and applied the historical to the modern, um, the modern sort of shapes and the modern mix and match concepts. You know, it's it's interesting because I just, um, Laurie just said, you know, how unusual it is for someone to know so much about, you know, my, my mom. And it, and it's true because when I came, <laughs> right? I mean, more than I do. Um, but, you know, when, oh. I, when I came along. Only was, about a certain, only about a certain uh, thing. I'm sure you are absolutely the expert on your mom. <laughs> well, well cer- certain eras. But, you know, as you know, um, uh, Rebecca, I was born in 1985. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I said, Lori, I have to admit that when I said, Rebecca, please don't put my age in. Can you just fudge it a little bit? And my, da- and my daughter, my brother goes, well, uh, she's not going to fudge it because you're obviously my my uh, older sister, which I'm not. I mean, he's my older brother. <laughs> so so Rebecca, kindly enough, she kind of fudged a little bit, which I love her dearly. I mean, um, it was very... Um, it was very kind of her <laughs> to, to, to do that, I must say. Um, but I pleaded with her. Did I not? I said, please, please don't, you know. So anyway. I sim- yes. I simply said a dollar, a daughter would follow. A daughter so would follow, it's open right? ended. It's a daughter would follow. It's open ended. So could have been, been in the 90s, could have been in the 80s, 90s, <laughs> right? I mean, it could have been around then. So, but during World War Two. What were the the challenges facing American fashion designers? That was actually bef- much before my time, maybe 
50 years before my time. So I really don't know that. Well, it was it was actually a big challenge. Besides the, the issue of being cut off from the Paris uh, influences that I talked about, um, there were restrictions on how much fabric you could use in a garment. The L85 order um, actually restricted the yardage that could be used in garments. And then even beyond that, there was the question of just getting fabric. There were fabric shortages um, almost you know, universally. Uh, the U.S. government had basically taken over the silk supplies before the U.S. even entered the war. Um, so silk is out of the question. And then, you know, just trying to figure out where you're going to get enough fabric to fulfill your orders uh, was a real concern for designers. So one of the great things that Emily Wilkins did was striking a deal with Everfast Fabrics. Now, they did primarily washable fabrics. So that was one of their calling cards was the fact that they were, quote, tubable to use in 1940s terms. You could wash them yourself, um, cottons and rayons mostly. And that was part of, you know, the appeal uh, for the teenage girls too, knowing that whatever you bought from Emily Wilkins' line, you could wash at home yourself. So you weren't going to have to spend money on having things professionally cleaned. Um, and with her deal with Everfast Fabrics, she was able to ensure that she had the fabric she need, uh, she would need to do her orders, at least until um, things lifted a little bit and there were more fabrics available. And then she branched out and used lots of other companies too. Um, but at least initially, getting this deal set up with Everfast was really key uh, to her being able to produce her designs. And she used these wonderful cottons for all kinds of fun things that you wouldn't have thought about. Um, for example, she did a wonderful evening dress out of a kind of a checked striped cotton, that sort of thing. So it was really fun to see the innovative way she used the fabrics that were actually available. And also, I think she was in Life magazine, no? They had something about, was it an army blanket? There was something that I, I saw. I remember buying the, the, the issue. I mean, just seeing it online and then buying it. But she was very, very innovative. And I guess that's, as you said, um, and that's probably why she received so much media attention. Do you, do you feel that's the reason? I do. I definitely think that's part of it. And I, I love the, the Army Blanket. That was a special project that she and Claire McArdle and Lily Dashe and Madame um, Etta Hens all co uh, cooperated on. They designed things that you could make from a single Army Blanket, and that was actually distributed through care packages after the war was over. Um, so Emily Wilkins actually designed a wonderful suit that could all be made from a single army surplus blanket. Pretty amazing. Um, oh. But, you know, I think another reason why she got so much attention was because she actually was, you know, her own best advertisement, too. You know, she was beautiful. She was useful. Um, this beautiful young woman who's designing these things and is actually, you know, running the, the company. So I think that was a really uplifting message. Um, people were really interested in that. And also, um, you know, just the fact that she was doing this great combination of modern things, but also referencing American history. I think that combination was really reassuring to people in the middle of the war. Um, it sort of represented all the best about American youth. People were sort of concerned about what's happening to this younger generation. They're, you know, having to grow up so fast. And then here she is to present this beautiful ideal of what's best about America. Um, 
the whole democratic ideal sort of comes through in her clothes. And I think that's what people were really excited about. Um, and having her name on the label meant that she got attention that a lot of designers who were working anonymously just wouldn't have gotten. Um, and last but not least, she had a great um, PR agent. She worked with Eleanor Lambert, Lambert. Um, mm-hmm. who, you know, was one of the founder of, founders of the Cody Awards, um, which Emily Wilkins won. So I think, um, I think all those factors kind of came together. Um, but, of course, it, none of that would have been, have been um, anything if she hadn't had this amazing talent and drive. So she took what she had and really made the most of it, and I think it was a great moment to be appreciated. You know, speaking of beauty, she always she'd always say Jane looks just like her father. <laughs> I mean, it was fine. My father was very good looking, but I mean, she was so gorgeous. I mean, she was like a show stopping gorgeous. People would like stop on the street and stare at her. She was that beautiful. She was absolutely, absolutely. red hair, and she had the most beautiful skin. She was. People would follow her on the street and say, "What do you do for your skin? It's so gorgeous." So, um, yeah. So she was really, and it was hard. As I said, it was not easy to grow up with a mother who was really so beautiful. But how would you describe? her uh, beauty ideal? Well, I think she really was, again, so ahead of her time and that she had this real wellness-based idea of beauty. Um, You know, obviously she thought youth was important, um, but she really thought that the way to get to the beautiful ideal was through health. So in her books that she wrote for teenagers, um, she wrote one in the late 40s and another in the 60s, Um, she's really telling teenagers, watch what you eat, make sure you're eating things that are going to build you up, not just empty calories, but make sure you're having, you know, healthy, healthy foods. She was already advocating organic um, in the 60s when, you know, years before that came into the mainstream. Uh, She uh, was telling people to exercise, make sure that that was a part of your everyday routine. Um, and just generally thinking, telling people to think positively and um, to just watch what you put into your body and what you do with your body and that real beauty has to sort of shine out. It was this very clean ideal, um, well-groomed, uh, not overdone on the makeup or anything like that, uh, just letting your natural health shine through. That was, I think, her ideal. Well, it was interesting, and she had the, the photos of these makeovers, her, her workshop in FIT, and she would take, and there were no, you know, plastic surgery wasn't so prevalent in those days, but just by changing the posture, combing their hair, using makeup, um, it her these makeovers, and she sort of was the originator of the makeover for women, you know, nowadays it's everywhere, but everywhere. in those days, <laughs> right. But in those days, um, no. And, and it was the, the before and after photos for just, again, very simple, standing up straighter, uh, dressing um, better and, and wearing the proper makeup and combing, you know, combing your hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello. Um, it was a, a, amazing to see these photos. Uh, the, as I said, the before and after, which is what she had in her workshop at FIT, which I thought was really fascinating. So, you know, her idea of beauty was, again, not making her the easiest mother, but really someone to uh, look up to and, and know that um, that she knew what she was talking about. As a matter of fact, speaking of organic, I know that she um, she, she bought like a cow once for like an organic <laughs> 
<laughs> and we found it like frozen in our refrigerators. Like, what is this? <laughs> it was like this cow. And, and it was because I remember we had this like huge like refrigerator or freezer, and, and there was this cow. And she's, oh, it's like grass fed before anyone knew that grass fed was, you know, better for us. Um, but she was very, 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 very ahead of her time. Also, the fresh vegetable juices, aside from the liver juice, mm. the carrot juice, and the apple juice, and all the juicing that she so believed in in those days where nobody really did that and uh, and and as i said nobody ate yogurt either so it was it was really fascinating to to see how her um, just everything she believed in just slowly evolve. Um, also about spas. Nobody went to spas in those days. And, and she wrote two spa books um, talking about how beneficial spas were. I mean, in those days, spas were just uh, any, you know, today, anybody who has a sink and, and water calls themselves a spa. <laughs> Right, but right, in those, right. In those days, they were very special, and she saw the benefit of like going away for a weekend or going away. She she went to spas. <laughs> I say, gee, mom, where are you going? <laughs> oh, to a spa, dear, to the Golden Door. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so, sounded good to me. But she came back looking so gorgeous and refreshed, and you know. So I thought, wow, this is something that you know, uh, it's it's good. And today, of course, it's it, it's everywhere. Um, so another way she was ahead of her time, very, very, very much. So so, um, so do you think um, her her legacy is is now coming? People are now because of your book um, going to realize her legacy uh, because I think many people really didn't know about her in those times because they were so very long ago. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have you know. They didn't have all the things that they have today to look people up. So well, I hope so. I hope people will. I hope people will realize that everything from you know, just clothing and fashion centering on teenagers. Um, It's very teenager-centric these days. And I think, you know, she was one of the first to even acknowledge them as consumers. Um, So I think that's certainly part of her legacy. I think that the wellness-based beauty is absolutely something um, that is part of her legacy. And, you know, even the idea of, like, young designers wanting to have their own label that's something that really wasn't done very often, and that's something that she really blazed the trail um, years and years ago. And, you know, also I think um, in some ways, you know, just even her brand of feminism in terms of you can be beautiful and still successful. You don't have to, you know, slump around um, with a sort of faux academic look um, to be intelligent. You don't have to where, you know, menswear in order to succeed in a man's world. I think those are things that um, she was really ideas, really, that she was way ahead of her time then, too. She was so much. I mean, it was and she even designed spa kits. And I remember in our our living room that I would see that nowadays um, all the cosmetic companies have spa kits, you know, the products with um, loofahs and creams. And and she thought that this was sort of a great take home gift from from the spa. So, again, everything that she has done was so far ahead of her time that um, it's amazing. And you have chronicled her career so brilliantly in your book. Oh, thank um, you. What thank have you, you personally learned from studying about my mom? Well, one of the things that I've really been able to to apply the most, actually, is some of her, her advice on building a wardrobe. It's so funny because we think, you know, people today, a lot of times, 
uh, if you do, you know, shop in person, so many things are bought online, you know, these days, um, which is totally not great for fit and all of those things. Uh, but she would advise going in person to shop, not um, not for entertainment, but very rationally um, making a list of all your clothes and what you need to fill in. If you need a black bag, for example, or a tan pair of shoes that you really focus everything on buying the best quality you can, something that will last for a long time and that will work with lots of different outfits um, and really building a wardrobe, thinking about it longer term, not just being like, oh, that's a really fun fill in the blank. I think I'll just grab that on the spur of the moment. She really uh, wanted people to think of their wardrobes as sort of an ongoing work of art that they were, you know, building on and adding to all the time um, with the highest quality. And, you know, her clothes for teenagers were very high quality as well compared to what, you know, otherwise teenagers might be buying. They were more, a little more expensive than a lot of the clothes that teenagers bought. Um, but she wanted people to think in the long term um, as like an investment and in your wardrobe as part of your investment. And the way she divided thinking about your clothes into play clothes day clothes, um, date clothes, and late clothes. Um, day, um, play, or late is a fun way to think about um, what, how am I really going to use these clothes. Uh, so I've really taken away a lot from her. And, you know, I was talking to a reader um, who's in her 20s earlier this week, and she was saying the same thing, that one of the things that she really took away from reading my book was this idea of, of wardrobe organization that Emily Wilkins um, suggested for all her, her teenage and later her adult uh, readers. Even in her spa books, when she's talking about doing a spa weekend at home, she says, make sure you know you put in at one point time to go organize your closet <laughs> in the middle of your spa weekend. So you know, I think that's, that's one of the things I've really taken away from, from studying her. And you, look, when I met you, I said, she, you were just the kind of woman that my mother would have adored. She would want you as a daughter (laughs) because you're so well coordinated. You're so, your children are so polite and beautiful. Your daughters are are just gorgeous and they're so polite. It's please and thank you. And that's like, who, who, and they write thank you notes. I mean, they're little, little girls, but I get thank you notes when I brought them. It's like, wow, you know, and you're (laughs) ideal. I think my mother would have preferred you over me. Any day of the week. No. <laughs> no, I mean, I joke about her, but I tell you something. She left an amazing legacy for me as well. She really did. And, you know, she wasn't a mommy mommy like I am and like you are. But, you know, she she that just wasn't her thing. But she still, with it all, she was a very positive, positive influence in my life. And I miss her. Well, absolutely. And you're certainly carrying on her legacy today in terms of, your your new book and your show and everything, I think those are things she would be so proud of because you're definitely carrying on that ideal of of wellness um, right. as the way to an overall beauty. So I think that's I think that's something that's very much um, part of her legacy too. It is indeed, and she'd be very, very happy. She's smiling from ear to ear because of this wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book you have written. I just know, and that, and, and that you are the the writer. You who are someone that epitomizes everything that she she believed in. So, everyone, the book is called Young Originals: Emily Wilkins and the Teen Sophisticate. And tell us where it's available, Rebecca. 
Well, you can probably find it at your local Barnes & Noble. It's in and mine. Um, but if not, you can buy it uh, through your independent bookstore by ordering it or obviously on Amazon um, or even through Texas Tech University Press's website too. Um, but it's available at most, uh, most of your regular book outlets. Well, thank you for sharing my mother's legacy. Thank you so much for being with us today. I, I really think that you've done, as I said, such a brilliant job in chronicling her entire career and um, just being the, the person that you are. So thank you again. Oh, thank and you come, so much. Come, come back again and talk. We have so much more left to talk about. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Jane. Oh, my pleasure. Everyone stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. We'll be back. As listeners of our iHeartRadio Talk Show know, Jane Wilkins Michael is one of the foremost experts on all things health, beauty, and fitness. Jane has just released her highly anticipated new book, Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before. In it, she shares a collection of advice, tips, and personal antidotes along with lifestyle suggestions from some of the world's top beauty, health, and fitness experts, many of whom have been interviewed on this show. Are you hoping to make positive health decisions, improve your emotional well-being, establish a support system, give something back to your community and the world? Jane's new book will help you look years younger and also live a longer, healthier, happier, and more beautiful life. You can order Long Live You, your step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before at your local bookstore or at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, where it's available for delivery or as an ebook. Or go to Jane's website, janewilkinsmichael.com. Now, back to The Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael's show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune in to Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins-Michael and Better Than Before. Welcome back, everyone. We're on the air live. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins-Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm here, as always, with Lori. Now, it is my pleasure to welcome, as I said in the intro, a very accomplished woman, Dr. Alyssa Dweck. Dr. Dweck is a partner and full-time practicing OBGYN in Westchester County, New York, right next to New York City. She co-authored V is for Vagina, your A to Z guide to periods, piercings, pleasures, and so much more. Aside from being an MD, she has a master's degree and human nutrition from Columbia University and is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Science at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dweck. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I guess I can't pretend I'm a doctor on the show, <laughs> as I sometimes do. <laughs> you, you'll know the truth, right? <laughs> <laughs> So tell us a little about yourself and your work as an OBGYN. Oh, sure. So I've been in practice for a little over 20 years. I am privileged to see lots and lots of women of all shapes, sizes, ages, and uh, whatnot. So it's been my pleasure to deliver loads of babies and now focus my practice on gynecology and uh, menopausal health and female sexual health. So. It's uh, been a long road. Now, 
every woman, as you say, should schedule her annual OBGYN exam. Why is that so important? Right. Look, I find that the yearly exam, although a yearly pap smear is not needed any longer, and we can speak about that more if you like, but a yearly exam is really an opportunity for women to come in and speak about issues regarding their sexual health and their female health that might be of concern to them. It's also a chance for us as healthcare providers to help with prevention of problems down the line, risk assessment for problems down the line, and really to provide reassurance and uh, guidance. So I think it's vitally important. Now, why you mentioned a pap smear is not every year, did you just say? is not a, We don't need one every year. Every other year, when, when do you suggest? Correct. So the, the guidelines for pap smears have changed over the last year or two. And again, this is not for everybody, but for the general population, women from 30 to 65 can safely get a pap smear every three to five years with an HPV test in order to screen for cervical cancer. Women don't start pap smears now until the age of 21, and at that point they can be every three years. So really this is a transition that we're facing over the past couple of years with pap smear screening. But that shouldn't be confused with not doing an annual GYN checkup every year. Right. Now, I must admit, I am way past the childbearing age, although I sometimes tell people that my four-year-old twin granddaughters are my daughters, and it's a good day when people actually believe that. Um, but, my, you know, my daughter's in her 20s, and I always, I always think it's kind of unfair that birth control is always up to the women. And, it, and you know, if, if men had it, if we had to um, rely on men, I mean, we'd have a million and one kids. <laughs> they, they just would never take it, right? So... Um, and, 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 you know, I, my daughter and I have had this talk about it. Are there new methods that maybe don't screw up your body, for lack of a better expression, so much? Because it's all kind of, um, you know, the pill is, I guess, the the birth control of choice. But maybe it isn't these days. What do you suggest? Well, I'm so glad you're asking that because while the pill is still remaining the most common form of reversible birth control, I think about 28% of, a women, of American women use this, there are other forms of birth control that have become much more popular and less taboo over the years. So for example, some of the longer acting reversible contraceptives such as the hormone releasing IUD like Skyla and Mirena have become very popular. And in fact, the newer IUD called Skyla, which is a three-year IUD, is now recommended for young women who have not had children yet and is considered safe. This, in fact, is a first-line choice by the American College of OBGYN. So we're, we're lucky to have this as another form of birth control that young women can think about. The other issue to bring up regarding age is that we have to keep in mind that perimenopausal women, women who are leading up to menopause but still menstruating, although maybe a little bit irregularly, still need birth control if they're having regular sexual activity. And we find that the Mirena IUD, which is a five-year IUD that secretes hormone, is very helpful for these women because not only is it excellent for birth control, but it also helps to prevent very heavy bleeding. So we're finding that there are a lot of non-contraceptive benefits with various forms of birth control. The birth control pill, which I mentioned is very common, also carries with it some non-contraceptive benefits and lessens the amount of flow, may help with cramping, may help with pain regarding, related to endometriosis and help with cycle control. 
So there are uh, lots of good reasons to consider contraception other than contraception. Right. Now, I know a lot of a lot of younger women, I seem to hear it a lot. They, they complain of um, bacter- BV, bacterial vaginitis or bacterial infections. They seem to be on, uh, they seem to be rampant. Is that from, I mean, why are they so rampant these days? Well, <laughs> right. So bacterial vaginosis, which used to be called Gardnerella, is actually not an infection that you get from somebody or something. It's basically an imbalance of the typical very balanced bacterial ecosystem in the vagina. So I think that women are more aware of it and therefore we're seeing more of it because women will come in and complain of this and be aware that it might be an infection. Um, but maybe part of the increased um, you know, note that you're seeing is because so many women are exercising and active and since uh, workout clothes can uh, really make you a little bit more prone to bacterial imbalance if you're in wet workout clothes for a long period of time and you don't take them off, maybe that has something to do with what you're noticing anecdotally. But in general, this is a uh, infection that's easily treated with um, an intravaginal uh, ba- uh, antibiotic. See, that's why I never do spin class. I mean, I'm sort of past the age of this, but I tell you something. That's one of the reasons. Though, are you? I say never do spin class. That is one of the reasons why. I mean, not oh, really, that's too bad. I, I'm thinking of any other excuse. Fun. That's just as an that's an excuse now that you mention it, but it has really nothing to do with that. Anyway, I just don't right. like spinning. Um, now, you also <laughs> treat older women, do you not? And what are some of the common of questions you receive from them these days? Well, I think a lot of older women, uh, and I won't even call them older women, let's just say middle-aged women or women who are in their uh, 40s and 50s and 60s, um, but mainly 40s and 50s, are very concerned about the hormonal changes that they're going through with age. And I think the whole perimenopause and menopausal status is not quite as taboo of a conversation as it used to be. So women are bringing this up to me. And I really enjoy speaking to them and helping to uh, alleviate some of the symptoms that they may be experiencing, such as hot flashes and night sweats and trouble sleeping and vaginal dryness and and the like. So this is a common uh, point of conversation during a, a routine visit for that age woman. Now, we talk hormonal hormones, I'm sure, are a huge topic, and certainly there's a lot of controversy about hormones these days. I tend to take, I don't tend, I take um, compounded hormones, which are bioidentical. But then again, people are saying, well, that's just the same. I mean, they replicate the same. It's estrogen is estrogen. But there seems to be a movement toward taking the bioidentical as opposed to the um, synthetic. Do you believe in that? Right. I think that there's a right answer for the right person. So in my practice, and I guess I should back up for a moment. Bioidentical just means that it is chemically identical to what your body would make on its own, say, in the past. There are pharmaceutical-grade bioidentical hormones that can be prescribed and perhaps covered by insurance companies, which is what a lot of my patients want to find happen. So that's why I, why I will prescribe uh, bioidentical hormones that are made by our typical pharmaceutical company and available in your typical uh, pharmacy. Compounded hormones probably carry with them the same risks and potential benefits that traditional hormones do. 
they are not necessarily recognized by the American College of OBGYNs as an equal alternative because you have to you know, be careful about formulation from a reputable compounding pharmacy. The amount of administration and dosing may be off or altered compared to something that's very well titrated um, in the pharmaceutical land. So I think that there are goods and bads of both, and I usually will work that out individually with my patients depending on what their desires are. Right. There was kind of a scary study years ago that said that um, women who are taking estrogen supplements are more prone to getting cancer. And I think women were saying, oh, my goodness, do I want to be a prune or do I want to get cancer? You know, what are mm-hmm. – <laughs> um, so what is – is there a new theory that maybe estrogen or progesterone or the mixture, you know, estrogen and progesterone are not as bad as they were before? But, again, you're saying it's individual. But in general, right. what, what's the theory? Is it Look, not this, scary? this pendulum has – Yeah, I think this pendulum has swung a couple of times. Uh, There very well likely may be a slightly increased chance of breast cancer on estrogen therapy, but again, it depends very much on the individual, what her medical background is, what her family history is, what her genetic status is, and how bad her symptoms are, and whether the risk-benefit ratio is worth taking hormone therapy, whether that is estrogen with or without progesterone. The other issue is uterine cancer, which has been shown to be higher in women who take estrogen, but is generally protected against when taking progesterone along with. So there are ways to manage risk and lower it. And really, I think that for somebody who's suffering day to day, it may be worth taking a small risk in order to have a better quality of life. So again, it really depends on the individual and her decisions. Now, what would you say are the most common symptoms of menopause? Do I get to like blame every one of my bad moods on something or will I get to? (laughs) (laughs) You sure can blame a lot of them. Look, I think hot flashes, night sweats, difficulty sleeping, those are common ones. Vaginal dryness is a common one. And these are all known to be related to a, a, a drop in estrogen levels. But there are other symptoms that go along with the menopausal time and whether some of them are just related to life circumstance or some of them are truly due to low estrogen, I think the jury's still out. But women complain of balance issues, skin changes, joint pain, headaches, breast pain. Um, So these are all things that might be related to or associated with the menopause time. The other thing to keep in mind is that sleep. Sleep is so important. And if women are not sleeping well because they're waking up several times in the nighttime with perspiration or sweating or hot flashes or whatnot, that's going to interfere with their general well-being during the day. So that's important to keep in mind. So, but sleep is now, what do you recommend for sleep to help us? Because that is an issue, whether or not in menopause or not. um, But how, is is there something? Because we, um, I'm finding that my sleep is just, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, it's off and and it just, I I don't know what that is. But what do you suggest for better night's sleep? I suggest a couple of things. First, stress reduction, whether that comes in the form of exercise meditation, yoga, pace breathing, or whatnot, because if you can de-stress a little bit during the day, you're likely to have a better night's sleep. 
Number two, I recommend avoidance of caffeine, specifically in the afternoon, because that, of course, can give you the jitters and make you feel awake. Number three, you can try some of the over-the-counter supplements or remedies. Melatonin has a pretty good track record, and I recommend that sometimes. Advil PM or Motrin PM or Tylenol PM for the right person might be helpful and gives a little bit of sleep. For the person who's really suffering, I might recommend a traditional sleeping pill or an anti-anxiety medication. And then for some women, it's really just getting to the bottom of their hot flashes and night sweats, so hormone replacement therapy or even one of the antidepressants that's been uh, indicated for hot flashes might be helpful. So there's really an entire war chest of remedies that might be helpful uh, depending on the person. Why do some women get hot flashes and others don't if they, if there are, if they are in menopause? It just depends on... Um... Well, part of that is the million-dollar question, but part of it is probably genetic. Part of it is related to risk factors. So we certainly know that women who smoke have more chance of hot flashes. Women who are overweight tend to have higher hot flashes. Sedentary women, women who drink tons of caffeine. Uh, red wine may be a culprit for some people and other dietary um, um, you know, uh, ingredients. So uh, those things are you know, able to be manipulated a little bit, but I think some people are just less fortunate than others when it comes to the hot flash department. Yeah, so not everyone should expect them. Some women just don't get them. Absolutely. Some women just literally fly through menopause without any uh, really untoward symptoms at all. Right. Now, I've heard a lot of buzz about public, (laughs) pelvic, (laughs) pelvic floor Mm -hmm. uh, lately. A lot of people are talking about it. And I know that my husband was standing in line. His mother needed Depends, right? His 90-year-old mother. And he said to me, I'm not carrying that. They were purple, by the way. He said, I'm not carrying this. I said, why? Do you think people really, A, care at CVS that you're carrying Depends? And B, (laughs) they're in small sizes. You're six feet, like (laughs) hundred and. 80 pounds, you really think they think those are yours. But anyway, says, no, you carry them. Like, I want to have Depends. However, um, this is a uh, an issue and, and in commercials about it all the time on, on television. And I, I guess it's um, leakage, for lack of a better word. I'm sure you have a better word for right. it. But, um, yeah. but, but you can do exercises. You can strengthen your pelvic uh, floor. Can you not? That will help this without um, sure. and, and maybe avoid... Um, having to wear a, a, a diaper for lack, also lack of a better word. So what are some of the things All that right. we can do to strengthen this area? Some exercises perhaps that we can do every well, day. Well, a, a couple of things will be helpful. Sure. So some women are really prone to um, a lax pelvic floor, if you will. So women who have had very large vaginal deliveries with large babies, they're going to be a little more prone. It tends to run in families or be genetic. And being overweight contributes to urinary leakage. So trying to, you know, have a, a maintain a, a reasonable weight will be helpful. Kegel exercises can be helpful. They are exercises that basically are like weight training for your pelvic floor muscles, and they will help, but you have to be religious about doing them. There are pelvic weights that you can basically do Kegel exercises with pelvic weights in the vagina that are helpful, and even pelvic floor physical therapy where there are special physical therapists who focus on this area of the body, and that can be helpful. I have even recently seen a pelvic floor exerciser that works with a phone app so you can do biofeedback on your own and really monitor your progress. So there is a lot to be said for that. 
in addition, timing your urination so that you're not waiting till your bladder is ready to explode um, and really going to the bathroom every couple of hours or every two hours in order to keep the bladder empty. And elimination of caffeine for those women who like it because that is a bladder stimulant and irritant. So those things are lifestyle changes that might be able to help. Lastly, there are surgical procedures that are helpful for urinary incontinence, but of course that's not for everybody. Now, for just simple exercises, should you just squeeze and let go? Is that some of the? Yeah. Um, is that a good one to do every day, just to strengthen? Sure. What I typically recommend is squeezing those muscles down in the pelvic floor that are making you think that you're holding in your urine stream firmly and holding that pose for about ten seconds, then release and then repeat, and I usually ask people to do up to 20 or 30 a day. The nice thing is they can be done while driving, while sitting, while working, and they may even increase your uh, sexual response or orgasm potential because they are strengthening those muscles there, so that's an extra bonus. Oh, so that's that's as good to know. Now, urinary tract infections, are those, those are different than, than um, vaginal um, infections, right? That's... That's different. Yes, they are. Yes, urinary tract infections are typically caused by bacteria that enter the urethra, which could be from contamination from the rectum or the vagina. They cause a lot of urinary urgency, and for some people, they'll have a little leakage or frequency um, as a result of an infection, um, and easily usually treat it with an antibiotic as well. Is cranberry, like cranberry supplements, good for that kind of thing? Do, for women should take those in general to sort of strengthen that that area, prevent those kind of infections? Or are they kind of ineffectual? Sure. The cranberry juice and cranberry pills can acidify the urine and make them a little less uh, prone to urinary tract infections. I'd say if somebody is prone to an infection uh, frequently, then cranberry supplements or juice would be really helpful on a regular basis. Uh, but otherwise, it's really an individual decision, but sure. Are there any, like, some tips that, uh, takeaway tips from the show that you can leave us with, some, a few Dr. Alyssa Dweck tips that we can put on our <laughs> refrigerator and refer to them every day? Absolutely. I think it's really important to take ownership of your, uh, your gynecologic health, Bring things up to your healthcare provider that you're concerned about because everybody seems to want to know if, if this is normal, is this normal, is that normal. Nothing is, um, you know, uh, embarrassing or taboo for your gynecologist to speak to you about, and I think that's very reasonable. So that would be my parting word. Well, you are very learned. Thank you so much for being with us. I always thought I was an oncologist, but now I want to change my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> after Thank you for having me. After listening to you, where can our listeners find you, Doctor? Thank you. I have a website. It's drdweck.com. And my book, Vias for Vagina, is easily available on that or on Amazon. Well, thank you again for being with us. Everyone, that's our show. Dr. Dweck, you're a wonderful guest. We appreciate your being here. Thank you, Lori, as always. And thank you all for listening. This is Jane Wilkins Michael. I will see you next week. Until then, be wise, be well, be better than before. Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.